I don't think it would come as any surprise to any of you if I was to make the claim that our generation, our time in history is gender confused. Uh, it, that might even be an understatement. Uh, we're increasingly becoming gender insane. Uh, we have no foundation as a, as a society for understanding what it means to be a man or a woman. Uh, is there a difference between the two? Are there more genders? Can you, can you go from one to the other and so on? So none of this is new to us. This is the world in which we live. This is the air that we breathe. Uh, some of this gender confusion, though, has come into the church. Uh, not just this church, but every church. We, we cannot help it. We live in the world in which we live, and we're impacted by the culture around us. And so whether it's the, the three waves of feminism, we might be on, in a fourth wave of feminism, or whether it's the LGBTQ plus agenda, it doesn't matter. There are forces in the world in which we live, in the culture in which we live, that have a direct impact on our own thinking, our own understanding, and by extension, the way in which we live our lives, both in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, and in the church. So the church in Canada in 2020 is likewise gender-confused. You have all kinds of confusion. You have... Um, the confusion that would go so far as to say that there is no difference between what it means to be a man and a woman on the one hand. On the other hand, you have gender confusion among rigid complementarian churches. Complementarian meaning that we see an equality between men and women, but the functionality of men and women are complementary. They're not exactly the same. But even within this complementarian movement, we have what I would argue is an overcorrection where in some expressions within the church of manhood and womanhood, what you see is this idea that men and women are almost two totally different species. That the equality and the sameness as, as being human beings gets lost in the discussion about, well, I'm a man or I'm a woman. And so, so we can fall into problems in every way. We can, we can go too far to say that there's no difference between men and women. We can even go so far as to say that there's so great a difference between men and women that they're not even within the same realm of creation. That's not here, but I've seen expressions like that in the church where women truly feel like second-class human beings, if human at all. We don't want to fall into any of these errors. We don't want to say that there's no difference between manhood and womanhood, men and women. We neither want to say that the difference is so stark and so great that we don't have some commonality in Christ as human beings. And so... For us at South Shore, we begin by affirming that we are image bearers, men and women of God, that we have a commonality as human beings. And we, we go back and we realize that God decided to make human beings in his image. And so he made human beings in his image, male and female, he created them. And so there's much to, to bring us together. To be a man or a woman in the church is to be an image bearer of God. We also share equally in the gospel through Jesus Christ. There is therefore neither male nor female, slave nor free, uh, Greek nor Jew. What does that mean? Just looking at the male or female. There's neither male nor female means that we share equally in salvation. The inheritance as sons of God is for men and women. We will share in the inheritance that is ours in Christ equally, whether you're a man or or a woman. But we don't stop there. The sameness is true. There is something the same about being a man or a woman, but we at Social also affirm that there's something different. God did not create human beings in one gender. Male and female, he created them. Something different about being a man or being a woman. The difference is not in our nature per se, that is in our value as image bearers or our uh, inheritance in the gospel, but our difference, if we start with the body, 
is a functional difference. Our biology says that we are to function differently as men and women. A man's body has a different function than a woman's body. Need I go into it more? There's a difference between a man's body and a woman's body. And you need a man's body and a woman's body to create another body, a child. So functionally, in the realm of biology and sexuality, there is a functional difference that a man and a woman play in the human race. But it doesn't end there. It's not merely biological, though it definitely is biological. And any attempt to change the body that God has given to us, if a man was to say, I want the body of a woman, even if we could make a man's body resemble the body of a woman, it will never function as the body of a woman. Likewise, if you take a woman and she says, I want the body of a man, even if we could change that body so that it physically resembles the body of a man, it will not function as the body of a man. So we can do a lot of alteration to our biology, but we can never alter the functionality. There was a story not too long ago where it was told that a man had given birth to a baby. It's provocative. But you read a little bit further, it actually was a woman that gave birth to a baby, which is expected and not that newsworthy. What was newsworthy is that this woman had altered her body to look like a man's body, but it was still functioning as a woman's body. So a man didn't give birth to a baby. A woman who had altered her body gave birth to a baby. So it wasn't that newsworthy that she gave birth to a baby. It was newsworthy that she disfigured her body. Now, the functional differences between men and women doesn't stop with the body, with the biology. It continues, God has given us different functions in the home to start and then in the church. Men, and I mean this could be a whole sermon, what I'm about to say could be actually a whole sermon series. But in Genesis, men were created first. Adam was created first. He's the leader. God gave Adam the law before Eve existed. And it was expected that he would teach his wife the law. What was the law? You can, have, you can eat any, from any tree, but of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. On the day that you do eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve did not exist when that law was issued forth from God to Adam. He's the leader. He's the teacher. And then God looked and he had said of everything he created, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good what I've done, God says. But then he saw that the man was alone. He says, it's not good that the man is alone. I shall create a what? A helper fit for him. So he caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. He took a rib from the man's body and he created a woman to be his helper. Not to be his leader, not to be his teacher, but to be his helper. Why the rib? We actually know that God could have taken a hair and created a woman. Why the rib? Because if a man and a woman lay down on the ground rib to rib, they're side by side. Equality. Equality. But functionally, a difference. Adam is still the leader. He's still the teacher. The reason that God created two genders, God could have, just let's remember this, the human race could have been one gender. It could have been. God could have said the, the human race is going to reproduce by clipping your fingernails and your fingernails are going to turn into people. That's ridiculous. But God could have. you know. And by the way, if you remember back to when you learned about the birds and the bees, that also is ridiculous. You do what and that happens? It's ridiculous. So, so God decides how he's going to multiply us. And he could have multiplied a one-gender creature. But he didn't. The reason that God created women was to help. That's offensive in our culture. But that's the truth. Genesis 1.18. 
Why do I give you this foray back into Genesis? It's because we, we're in the book of Romans and we've come to Romans chapter 16. I'm going to do a micro-sermon today. That is, I'm going to preach Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, as if the rest of the book of Romans doesn't exist. You're like, you're going to do what? Yeah, you never do that. I know, but I'm doing it today. I'm going to, I'm going to preach these two verses as if the rest of the book of Romans does not exist. Peter's going to pick up next week. He's going to contextualize this. Uh, let me just give you this. We're, we're in that part of Romans where we're responding to the gospel. And in chapter 16, the big point, how do we respond to the gospel? We work together. We work together to extend God's kingdom, to extend God's kingdom. But I'm not going to talk about that today. Today we have a question. And the question, well, we could do this question, is Phoebe really a deacon in a local church? Or we could ask the question, is it permissible for women to serve as deacons in the local church? That's the question we're going to look at today. Would you open to Romans 16? And as you're finding your place, please stand. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sancre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at this question, was Phoebe really a deacon? And what, do we, what did Paul mean when he said that she was a deacon? And can women serve at this church as deacons? God, give us biblical clarity in a gender-confused age. For we want to be faithful to the Scriptures. Help me to be clear and help those who are listening to receive the teaching of your Word. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you're reading out of the ESV, let's clear up a text-critical issue first. I read, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sencre. Have I changed the words of the Bible? No. If you have the ESV in front of you, the word servant should have a footnote. Does it have a footnote? Follow that footnote, and the footnote should say, or deacon S, or deacon. The Greek word that is translated in your Bible, if you have an ESV Bible, is the masculine singular form of the word diakonos, deacon. So I have not changed the words of the Bible. This is a good time to remind ourselves that the translation that you have in your hand is a translation. The, the English is not the Word of God, at least not directly. It's the original Greek that is the inspired. We, our profession of faith is that the Word of God is in the original autograph, the original autograph, that is when Paul put ink to parchment, that's the Word of God. We have copies of the Word of God in Greek, and we have translations of copies of the Word of God in all kinds of languages, including English. Now, that should not concern you when you say that your Bible is the Word of God. What you mean to say is this is, this is a translation of a copy of the Word of God, and it is trustworthy. So I'm not trying to undermine our confidence in the Bible, the English Bible that you have in front of you, but what I do want to say is when you stand up to preach the Word of God, it's not sufficient to go to the King James or the ESV or the NIV. You have to go back to the Greek. And so I am preaching to you the Greek. 
So when I say I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church, don't tune out and say, oh, Adam is play, p- playing fast and loose with the scriptures. In fact, I would say that I have been more faithful to the original word of God by saying deacon than servant. Now we're going to talk about, well, what does that mean that she was a deacon? Nevertheless, there's, there is zero controversy about what this word is, it's not even the feminine. So in your footnote, if it says, or deacon S, that's not even accurate. It's the masculine singular form of the noun deacon. So Phoebe, according to Paul, was a masculine singular form of the word deacon of the church at Sencre. And he commended her to the Romans that they would welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and they would help her in whatever she may need from them for she has been a patron of many and of Paul himself. Phoebe probably was the letter carrier of the book of Romans. So was Phoebe a deacon in the official sense? Did Did she occupy the position of deacon? in the local church or not? Some say no. Some say that the word deacon, and they're right about this, can be used in an official sense for the office of deacon in the local church, but the word itself originally, that is before it was used to occupy or to to describe the office of deacon, it was used, or the word actually just means servant which is why the ESV translates it servant. But what you have to recognize is the translators of your ESV Bible, when they say servant, why do they choose to translate this word servant here and in other places where it's the official function in the local church, they translate it deacon? Why not be consistent? Why not translate the word deacon always as deacon or always as servant and let us figure it out based on the context? is because the translators are also interpreting. The translators are making an interpretive decision, and for those who don't know the Greek or don't know to even go to the Greek, the the power in the translation is that they get to decide for us who or or what deacon, deacon meant in Romans 16 versus what it might have meant in 1 Timothy 3. So was... Phoebe, a small d deacon, that is a servant, just as all Christians are servants, or was she a capital D deacon, as in occupying a particular functional role that was recognized in a local church? Some say she was a servant in a small d deacon kind of way, just as we are all deacons. We're, we're all servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe. Maybe she was the letter carrier only. I would ask the question, though, why didn't then Paul use the word doulos? Why use the word deacon, diakonos, instead of doulos? Because oftentimes, not always, but most of the time, when Paul is talking about the, 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 the function of Christians as servants, he uses the word doulos, which means slave. Why did he not say, I commend you our sister Phoebe, a slave of the church at Sencre? Well, usually because the word doulos is associated not with the church. She's not a slave of the church. If you're a doulos, a slave, you're a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're a deacon, a servant of the church, but you're a slave of of Jesus Christ. Well, why did he choose to call her a deacon of the church and not a slave of Christ? This is an official introduction of Phoebe to the church at Rome. If she was a small d deacon, a servant, a doulos, a slave, why not just say, I commend to you this letter carrier, a doulos of of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as I am a slave, a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second question, why did he use the masculine singular form of the noun diakonos instead of the feminine form? 
You would think, right? Unless he was late. He, we know Phoebe is not a man because I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. A male singular deacon or a male singular deacon of the church at Sencre. Is Paul gender confused? I would say that these two observations help us to see that Phoebe was indeed a functional deacon in the official sense. She held the position of deacon in a local church. Number one, the fact that Paul is commending Phoebe and giving her role within a local church is interesting. Phoebe belongs to a local church, and she has a function within that local church. It's deaconing. She's a deacon. So her diaconate is directly linked to a local church. Secondly, she's not merely a deacon or a doulos of the Lord in a general sense. She is a deacon of a particular church. Not the universal church, but a particular local church. And then third, the fact that he uses the male singular form of the word deacon instead of the feminine form. Why? Perhaps because this word deacon is not directly tied in its parsing, its gender, to the woman, but to the office. The office according to the Greek language, is to be understood in the masculine sense, grammatically. So she is a deacon, or she fulfills a function, and the function is to deacon, and the word deacon is going to be communicated in the male singular, not in the feminine, because it's attached to her function and not to her gender. Now, if you don't know anything about language, that might be confusing, but that happens sometimes. French is a good example Right? What makes a dog masculine and a cat feminine in French? Are there not feminine dogs and masculine cats? Yes. It's grammatical. It's not biological. So could that be what's happening here? That she, she is fulfilling a function, and, uh, an office, and that office is going to be described in the masculine, and a woman apparently can fulfill that function or that office. Last bit of evidence that I want to bring to you from this text is verse 2. I want you to welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Welcome her as a deacon. Help her in whatever she may need from you. This woman is going to be giving some direction to the local church in Rome. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Paul exhorts the church in Rome to treat Phoebe not according to her biological gender, but according to her office and the esteem that that deserves from one local church to another. Now, okay, is this an open and shut case from Rome, uh, Romans 16, 1 and 2? No. I think it's persuasive. The things that I've said, I think that those are persuasive reasons. But I do acknowledge that that's not enough in and of itself. And so we have to ask the follow-up question, is it even theologically permissible for a woman to serve as a deacon in the local church? Remember, I affirm, and I began this morning by saying Adam was created first. He was created to be the leader and the teacher, and Eve and women following Eve are created by God to help. I'm not changing my mind on that. That's what the Bible teaches in many places. With that in mind, can a woman 
theologically speaking, biblically speaking, actually fulfill the function and the office of deacon in the local church? Would that override what we've learned from Genesis? If a woman serves as a deacon, if she's officially recognized as a deacon in an official sense, if she occupies the position of deacon in the local church, is she now leading? Is she now teaching? Is there any other place in the Bible other than Romans 16, 1 and 2 where we see women serving officially in the capacity of deacon in the local church? Let's start in Acts chapter 6. The very first reference to the diaconate. What is a diaconate? The diaconate is the group of deacons in a local church. So it's the group of Individuals in a local church that together occupy the position of deacon. So the first reference to the diaconate in the local church is in Acts chapter 6. So if we're going to answer this question, is it permissible for a woman to serve officially in the capacity in the office of deacon in a local church, we should probably do our due diligence and go back to the very first reference of deacon in the Bible. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. In those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, Gentile Christians, arose against the Hebrews, that's the Jews, because their widows, the Greek Gentile widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. I added of food, but that's what it is. So it was up to the church to look after the widows. The Jewish Christian widows were getting fed and the Gentile Christian widows were not getting fed. So the twelve, that is the apostles who are serving as overseers or later will be called elders. So the twelve apostles minus Judas plus Matthias summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They're not saying that serving tables is a menial task and not important. In the context, it means giving widows food so they don't die. So it's not, it's not as if it's a less important thing to do in the local church. It's a really important thing to do. If you neglect the Gentile widows long enough, they'll die. But they said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to do this very important thing. Making sure that nobody falls through the cracks, everybody gets their food. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The elders are exercising leadership. They summoned the disciples together. They said, look, it's important that we focus on prayer and preaching and teaching the ministry of the word. Just remind ourselves, what was Adam to do? He was to lead and he was to teach. The elders are saying, we need to do those things. We need to lead and we need to teach. We need someone to help us so that nobody starves to death in the local church. Therefore, pick out seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit. And what they, that is the apostles, said, the twelve, pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. Two qualifications to be among the original diaconate in the first local church of Jerusalem. What were those two qualifications? You have to be a man and you have to be full of the Holy Spirit. If you're a man and you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're qualified to help the elders, the, the, tw the twelve, so that nobody starves in the local church. A couple of questions. Is this really the first diaconate? The word deacon doesn't show up here. 
nevertheless, yes, this is the beginning of church polity, the beginning of church governance, the beginning of the bifurcation between elders and deacons. The twelve are the elders, the seven are the deacons. So yes, this is the first diaconate. Was the first diaconate male only? Yes. Was being a man a qualification requirement to be a deacon in the Jerusalem church in A.D. 35? Yes. So then the next question, which is crucially important, is, is this prescriptive for us today? Because if this is prescriptive for us, that is, we have to do what this passage tells us as it tells us, if there's no deviation from this permitted, then we can only have men who are full of the Holy Spirit who can serve as deacons in the local church. So is it prescriptive or not? No, it's not. It's descriptive. How do we know that it's descriptive and not prescriptive? A couple of ways. Number one, it's narrative. Narrative is most always descriptive, and we have to be very carefully weigh what's going on in the narrative and figure out what, what um, principles are prescriptive. So there are prescriptive principles in this text. You should have elders and deacons. The elders should give themselves to the ministry of the word, prayer, and leadership, oversight of the church, and the helpers should help, and they should be full of the Holy Spirit. But do they need to be men? If this was the only passage in the Bible that talked about the deacons, the diaconate, I would say yes. But this is descriptive in that sense because it's narrative and we, we find out later that women are serving as deacons. Romans 16, 12, I commend to you our sister, Phoebe, a deacon, male singular, of the church at Sencre. Help her in whatever she asks of you. She's been a patron of many, of me, myself also. The other thing about the book of Acts, which is really important, in the very structure of the book of Acts, we have chapters that are absolutely prescriptive and chapters that are descriptive with prescriptive principles embedded. That's a mouthful. Acts 1 to 4 are prescriptive, Acts 5 to 28 are descriptive. How do I know? How do I know that? Because of what happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 5. The way that Luke has written the book of Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that for four chapters, he gives us an Eden-like existence in the church. There's not a single reference to sin in Acts 1-4. to Everything is exactly as it should be, just as in the Garden of Eden. So are Genesis 1 and 2 prescriptive in every, for, every way? Yes. So far as you can live that way in a fallen world? Yes. Likewise, Acts 1 to 4 are prescriptive. And then you have a new Adam and a new Eve, Ananias and Sapphira. And you see, just as Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 introduced the fall of the human race, you have Ananias and Sapphira who function literally, theologically, in Luke's presentation of the church in Acts 5 as the fall of the church. Now, was there historically sin in the church before Ananias and Sapphira? Yes, absolutely. But it is not captured for us in Acts 1-4 by Luke because he's doing something theological with the way in which he is portraying the church. And he is presenting Ananias and Sapphira as a new Adam and Eve. And what did they do? Everyone was selling their possessions and giving their pro the proceeds of, of what they owned to the poor, or to the church, and the church would distribute it among the poor. Ananias and Sapphira sold what they owned and then held back a portion from themselves and told the church that they had given everything. And they were both struck dead. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
What Luke is saying is, when you're reading the book of Acts, one to four prescriptive, try and make that a reality in your church. Five through 28, descriptive. The Holy Spirit operates in different ways with different people at different times. Sort it out. I'm going to describe to you the local church. So when you get to Acts 6, is this before or after the episode of the fall of the church with Ananias and Sapphira? It's after. Therefore, it is descriptive. Luke is telling us if he wanted this to be prescriptive, he would have established the diaconate before Acts 5. But he didn't. Do I yet have an open and shut case for women deacons? No, I've actually made it much muddier, haven't I? Much muddier. You may not be willing to go along with me with this prescriptive, descriptive talk about Acts 6, but that's just how you read narrative. So we have to go to the slam dunk, the place where it really matters, and that's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's start in verse 12. Open your Bibles there because I want you to see for yourself the things I'm going to teach from 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, let's start easy. What this does not mean is I permit a woman to teach and exercise authority over a man. I don't know how or why, but churches all over North America come to this verse and they say, well, actually... What Paul means here is, I do permit women to teach and exercise authority over men. But just look at it. What does it actually say? I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So you have to do a lot of gymnastics to make that mean the exact opposite of what it says. That's what it means, and that's what it says, and that's what Paul means. Women are not to be the leaders or the teachers in the local church. And the context of this uh, verse is polity, governance in the local church. Now, is this verse about the diaconate? No. So far, Paul hasn't mentioned anything about deacons. And this is where complementarian churches just so quickly find themselves in the ditch. They so desperately want to protect the church from gender confusion. They want so desperately to protect the church uh, from, from giving women too much liberality that they say, well, women can't teach or exercise authority over a man. Therefore, men have to do everything in the local church. False. Because if that's what Paul had wanted to say, that's what Paul would have said. If Paul wanted to say that women cannot serve in any official capacity in the local church, that's what Paul would have said. He would have said women cannot serve. Women are to serve only in the home. They are not to serve in the church. You cannot recognize a woman in any official capacity in the local church. I don't think Paul was too intimidated to say something like that. He could have said something like that. He never says anything like that. He puts some restrictions on what a woman can and cannot do. And in so doing, he puts some responsibility and accountability on what the men ought to be doing. But he never says women cannot serve as deacons. And what we're going to find out is whether or not a woman can serve as a deacon depends so much on, well, what is a deacon? What was a deacon in Acts 6? Were they leaders? Were they teachers? It's not right, said Peter, speaking on behalf of the then elders, that we should give up leading and praying and teaching so that we can serve tables. Was it an important job? Yes, lives depended on it, but it's not right 
that we should neglect our elder duties in order to do this important task in the church. Therefore, we need some help. We need some help. They weren't looking to replace themselves as leaders of the local church. They were not looking for someone to preach. They were not looking for somebody to teach. They were not even looking for someone to, to pray, although I'm not against women praying. I think there's many places. First Corinthians comes to mind, which is, I can't go there, where women should be able to preach vocally in the local church as well. Or pray, sorry. Pray, pray, pray. Pray. <laughs> so, what is a deacon? A deacon, according to Acts 6, and this is the principle we need to pull out, is a helper. Now, what some churches do with 1 Timothy chapter 12 is say, well, you know, Paul was so antiquated. He was just confused because he lived in a time when men were ignorant and abusive and coercive and paternalistic. And so he's just a victim of his culture and so we just want to add a few corrections to Paul's thinking. Paul said women were not permitted to teach or exercise authority over a man, but he was wrong. Uh, we've learned so much. We've evolved since then. And so we're just going to take the trajectory and we're going to say that women can do whatever men can do. But you'll notice Paul does not appeal to his culture or any other culture after the fall. He, if you look at verses 13 and 14, he says... Uh, why do I say that a woman may not teach or exercise authority over a man? Because Adam was formed first and then Eve. And e Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I don't have time to get into those verses except to say he roots his reasoning in why God made human beings male and female. He created Adam to be the leader he created Adam to be the teacher. How do we know that? He created Adam first, leadership. And he gave Adam the law before Eve existed, teaching. He created Eve second to be the helper. And after the fall, we're told that Eve will want to rule over her husband. So this desire that women have to be the leader, to be the teacher, is not a part of God's created uh, order for human beings. Women, hear this. My wife will attest to this. She, this is a theological position that she argues more strongly than I do, but I, I agree with her 100%. Men have sin issues that are just native to what it means to be a man. Need I get into them? There's things that every man to a variety of degrees are, is going to struggle with. Well, let me just name one, lust for one. Men struggle with lust because we're men and we're fallen. Some men struggle with it a little. Some men struggle with it a lot. All men have to be on guard. Women, too, have to be careful of that sin, but not nearly as much on a gender-wide basis as men. But there is a gender-specific sin that is native to womanhood that if you're a woman, hear this, this is just part of what it means to be a woman conceived and born in a fallen world. It, this is what it means to be a woman even as a Christian who carries around the flesh. You will want to have control. You will want to control your husband. You will want to control your kids. You will want to control the government. You will want to control the church to a more or lesser degree. It's just a part. That's Genesis 3, 15, no, 16 and 17. I didn't just come up with that out of thin air. That is Genesis 3, God cursed the woman and says, look, you're going to want to control your husband and it's going to be hard to be a mother because sin is in the world. And that's what Paul is saying here. In the church, we have to try and go back to the created purpose of God for men and women. Men are the leaders' teachers. Women are the helpers. Both are important. Without helpers in the local church of Jerusalem in AD 35, people are starving to death. 
So I don't know where we get it in our minds that to be the leader teacher is a great thing and to be a helper is an awful second-rate thing. Both are equally valuable to God. God created men and women to be equal with different functions. So is this prescriptive that women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man? Yes. We know that because Paul goes back in his rationale to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and because this is not narrative. This is an epistle. The, the um, genre of the text determines how we read it. You read narrative one way. You look for descriptive and prescriptive elements. In epistles, it's always entirely prescriptive. You still have to do the hard work of historical, literary, and theological context Nevertheless, the epistles are written to prescribe how we're to live. Now, in case we're not satisfied with that, just go to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, and we find out that this letter definitely is prescriptive. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Is this prescriptive? Yes. How do we know? Well, because of the genre, but also because Paul tells us so. Well, we still haven't answered the deacon issue, have we? We know that a woman cannot be the leader teacher, but can she be a deacon? Something to note. You see here, in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, you, you get the, this statement in verse 12 that men are to be the leader's teachers and women are not permitted to be the leaders of the teachers of the local church. Paul then appeals to the very first household, Adam and Eve. Then you come to the end of this textual unit in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16, and we, we again are back in household imagery. I'm writing these things to you so you know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Put these two together before we fill in 1 Timothy 3, 7 to 13. Or 1 to 13, sorry. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15 Men and women should behave in the local church exactly how Adam and Eve were created to interact with one another in the original household. 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16, I am writing you these things so that you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What is Paul saying? The household of God, which is the local church, should be operating on the exact same principles as the original household of humanity, the household of Adam and Eve. You understand your place in the local church as men and women based on what God created and called Adam and Eve to do in the original household because the church is the reestablishment of the principles of that household. Did you see how that goes together? Adam and Eve household, local church household, the two go together. I want you to behave in the local church just as God intended Adam and Eve to behave in the Garden of Eden. In between these two statements of household, the household of Adam and Eve and the household of the local church, you have 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 13. And this divides into two parts. Verses 1 to 7 is going to tell us the function of elders. And in verses 8 to 13, the function of deacons. What I love about this is if you're thinking in terms not of Acts 6, but if you're thinking in terms of Adam and Eve, you have leaders and teachers and you have helpers. Which means the elders, which Paul is going to describe for us in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7, are fulfilling the Adamic mandate, meaning they're going to do in the local church what Adam was to do in his household. Elders are going to be the Adam of the local church. They're going to lead and they're going to teach. Which means in verses 8 through 13, we have a whole category of people who are officially recognized in the local church who are going to help. 
they're going to fulfill what God created Eve to do. Therefore, they can be men and women. In fact, you know, it's shocking, actually, that deacons can be men. That's the, the thing that shocks me. It would, make, it would be much cleaner if God said, men are to be elders, women are to be deacons. That, oh, everybody gets that. But now all of a sudden, men can, can help? Men can help? Yes. Let's take a look at it. I'm not going to go through verses 1 to 7, but I'm just going to summarize that for you and say that in those passages, or in those verses, you get a, uh, a list of qualifications for how, what a man must be to be biblically qualified to be a leader and a teacher in the local church. And then you get to verse 8, and we get a description of the helpmate office of the local church, verses 8 to 13. In verse 9, we find out that deacons are to be believers, not teachers. Take a look at it. They, that is deacons, must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Do you see that? Deacons must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Up in uh, verse 2 of chapter 3, it says the elders must be able to teach. But in verse 9, when we're talking about deacons, deacons don't have to be able to teach. They just have to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They have to be believers, in other words. Not teachers. I do not permit a woman to teach have we violated 1 Timothy 2 yet? They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. No, that doesn't violate 1 Timothy 2.12, that women are not permitted to teach men. In verse 10, we find out that deacons are to be helpers, not leaders. Take a look at verse 10. Let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, how do we apply that verse? Give potential deacons some things to do. See if they are effective helpers. Give them something to do. Test them. Tell them to help you with this or help you with that. And if they prove themselves to be good helpers, then officially appoint them to the position of helper in the local church. Have we violated 1 Timothy 2.12 yet? I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Give, give these people something to do, and if they're good at doing it, then appoint them full-time as servants in the church. No. Still don't have women leading. Verse 12 is a little more controversial. This is crucial to understand. Deacons are to be faithful managers, not governors. Take a look at verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Gets controversial, right? Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Oh, we're talking about men. Maybe. Are we talking about single men? Can a single man serve as an elder? Before we're too wooden on this, let's realize what's at stake here. If we say, well, this is about men, then it's about men who are married. And what we're saying is verse 12 disqualifies men who are single, that have never married. A single man cannot possibly be a deacon in the church if you're saying a woman can't be a deacon in the church based on that. Or what about a widower? Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Well, he had a wife, but now he doesn't have a wife. Therefore, he can't be a deacon anymore. He served as a deacon for 25 years. His wife died, and we told him, you're done. Because of verse 12. That doesn't make any sense either. What about a widower who's remarried? Let each deacon be the husband of one wife. 
Well, one wife at a time? That's not what Paul says. Yeah, I I bring this up because we get ourselves in theological knots over nothing. What does Paul mean here? He means let deacons be faithful to their spouse. Well, how do I know that, that it could be about women? There weren't many polygamous women in, in Ephesus. So it was just like not necessary to say. Let each woman only have one husband. Well, of course. You don't have any women with multiple husbands. It's the men that have multiple wives. So the whole point there is let's not be too restrictive. The point I want to focus on, though, because remember, our governing verse is chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Verse 12, managing her children and her households well. Compare that with verse 4. He that is an elder must manage his own household well. That's where it stops with deacons. But with elders... The qualification continues, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's missing in the qualification for deacon. Why? The point of verse 12 is these deacons are not governing the local church. But if you're going to tell a group of people to make sure that nobody starves to death, they better be administratively able They better be able to manage things. How do you tell if somebody's able to manage something? Well, can they manage stuff at home? Now, everyone, men and women, who here has a home where your wife is not allowed to manage anything at home? After all, you're the man. You're the leader. So, So, you know, Honey, I would call the plumber, but you're the leader. I, I, I would try to set up our internet, but you're the leader. I, I, I would try and get, uh, organize a meal plan for, for the kids' school lunches, but you're the leader. Like, it, it's nonsensical. Like, we don't live that way. We, don't, we, we understand the difference between leading and managing, right? And part of helping is to be able to manage, to be, to be able to look after things. It's an administrative management. It's not a governance leadership. It, it, it's the same as, as governments. Governments lead and bureaucracies manage. So after the, the law is, is made, it's downloaded to a bureaucracy and civil servants who implement it. But nobody says that the civil servants are, are the actual elected uh, representatives. Uh, uh, there's no civil servant, no matter how powerful, who's governing. The civil servant can only manage what the government tells the civil servant to manage. Likewise, whether in the home or the church, if you're a helpmate, whether you're, you're a wife as a helpmate or a deacon, you're not leading, you're not governing, you're managing, so you better be good at it. And then finally, you see here the knockout punch for me is verses 8 and 11. Verse 8 is definitely directed to men. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. But in verse 11, we see the exact same uh, set of, of qualifications given to women. And if in your Bible it says their wives, I would actually just scratch that out because, again, going back to the Greek, it does not have the third person plural pronoun there. That's just not there in the Greek. The T H E I R word is not in the Greek. Get rid of it. The word is gune, meaning women plural which is the same, they didn't have a different word for wives. So it could be women likewise, or wives likewise. But there's no reason to say it has to be wives. There is no qualifications for the wives of elders. Why would there be qualifications for the wives of deacons? 
This is an invitation to allow women to serve as deacons, just as the men of verse 8. Women, likewise, if they're going to serve as deacons, must be dignified, not slanderous, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Just look at the parallel there. Deacons must be dignified. Women must be dignified. Deacons must not be double-tongued. Women must not be slanderers, which is the very definition of being double-tongued. Deacons must not be addicted to much wine. Women must be sober-minded minded deacons must not be greedy for dishonest gain women must be faithful in all things it's the same thing it's the same concepts so what paul is doing in verse 11 is saying oh by the way women can serve in this function therefore elders fulfill the role of adam deacons fulfill the role of women and you have Men only as elders, leading and teaching, and you have men and women helping the elders in the local church in an official capacity as helpmates, helpers, believers, not teachers, helpers, not leaders, managers, not governors. And therefore, have we yet crossed the line of 1 Timothy 2.12? I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. No. Deacons are not to be teachers. They're not to be leaders. The elders delegate ministries, important ministries, to deacons, and we ask deacons to manage them. Well, what about Acts 6? That was clearly men only. Acts 6 is describing a reaction by Peter and the apostles in A.D. 35. Romans was written mid to late 50s, some 20 years later. And 1 Timothy, the clearest expression of elders and deacons, was written somewhere between A.D. 62 and 64. Some three decades later than the establishment of the diaconate. So historically, was the first diaconate men only? Yes, it was. But the Holy Spirit was working through the church as the church was trying to figure itself out and revealed through the Apostle Paul and others that women can serve as deacons. Why? Because that's what God created Eve to be, a helper. And deacons are helpers. Uh, Ladies, those of you who were in the hermeneutics class, there's something called the progressive principle. What is that? Maybe not more important, but yes, Shauna, you're exactly right. So when the later the revelation, the greater its governing function in interpretation. So what came later, Romans and then 1 Timothy came later than Acts. And therefore, we must understand Acts 6 through the interpretive lens that 1 Timothy and the book of Romans gives to us. And we understand, well, Peter said men only. Paul later said men and women Therefore, Phoebe was a woman who occupied the office of deacon of the local church of Sencre. She was sent to Rome in her official capacity as a helper, a deacon, a servant of one local church to be a helper, servant, deacon of another local church under the authority of Paul and the elders of Sencre and the elders in the church at Rome. She's not leading, she's not teaching. But she is helping and she is serving in an official capacity. Paul commended her to the Roman Christians in her role as a deacon. 1 Timothy, uh, Paul in that letter affirms the rightness of appointing women to the office of deacon in the local church. Therefore, at South Shore, we are complementarian. We believe that men and women are equal, image bearers equal in the gospel, equal in the inheritance of salvation, different in function. Men only will serve as elders, preaching and teaching and governing over this local church. But our deacons, which we call stewards, the helpers that are recognized in official capacity, we will draw from able, qualified men and women. We want not to be more restrictive than the Word of God. 
Our stewards function as helpmates to the elders. They do not govern and teach as in their role as stewards. They manage the ministries entrusted to them and they believe. I just want to end our time this morning by thanking our devoted stewards. Uh, we are blessed to have men and women serving in this capacity. I want to thank Julia, Rob, Twyla, Lyndon, Wayne, Lori, Janet, Tom, Matt, Justina, Jenny, Blair, and Peter, our stewards, which are biblical deacons, servants, helpers in the local church. We have entrusted important ministries to you. And yes, from time to time, a woman will even call a meeting to order. But she is not governing the church. She is managing a ministry that's been delegated to her. You stewards are indispensable to the operation of this local church. Imagine if we elders had to do all the work that you are doing. Just mathematically, it makes no sense. Right? There's four of us, and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen of you. So, so mathematically, you are doing uh, the work that 13 people could do and you're freeing us up to do something else, which is to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer and to the leading of this church, to govern this church, to take us where the scriptures are calling us to go. You are indispensable to the functioning uh, and operation of this local church. Without you, this church is not what it is. Your collective help enables us to elder effectively and efficiently and you make eldering a joy for us. I know so many pastors that are doing what deacons could do. And there are so many qualified women in our local churches. Let's officially recognize them for who they are and what they are and what they bring to the table. Let's empower them, delegate to them the opportunity to serve. After all, that's what the word deacon means. To serve. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the deacons of this church, which we call stewards. I thank you for Phoebe, who was a faithful deacon in the fifth and sixth centuries, or decades, of this church. God, I pray that you would continue to give us clarity of thought. Let us not be gender confused one way or the other. There is a difference between men and women. And yet, let us find the biblical rationale for why we do what we do. To not exceed or go beyond what you have called for us as men, what you've called for us as women. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.